1,020 days, almost three years behind bars in China. And in one fell swoop, the two Michaels were on a plane to Calgary while Ming Wazhu, CFO of Huawei, pleaded guilty in a deferred prosecution agreement and was then on a plane back to China. It's been three years of frosty relations between Canada and China. Can or will the relationship be repaired? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. Canada does trade with China, but nowhere near to the extent we do with the U.S. China is the world's second largest economy, trailing only the U.S. There's huge potential for growth with China. But when you consider what's happened between the two, you wonder if the trust has been broken permanently. Canadians, according to pollsters, overwhelmingly want Canada to distance itself from China. Our unpublished vote question asks, do you expect Canada-China relations to improve with our new government? 8.7% said yes. 84.8% said no. 6.5% said they were unsure. However, you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the future, if there is one for Canada-China relations, Robert Hanlon, Associate Professor at the Department of Philosophy, History, and Politics at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia. Colin Robertson is a former Canadian diplomat and the Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Peggy Mason is the President of the Rideau Institute on International Affairs. And Mimi Lee is with the Torontonian Hong Kongers Action Group. And I want to thank you all for, for joining us. And uh, you know, obviously, the two Michaels are back home now. Meng Wanzhou is back home as well. You know, I, I'm wondering, Robert, does Canada need to engage with China or, or should it pull away considering China's actions? Um, I think we absolutely need to engage with China. Um, we have to be clear on how that's done, though. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, there is an opportunity here for a bit of a reset, but we have to be very careful on how... Um, we go about it. You know, I think um, we do have plans and strategy. If anyone that's been following over the last few years, the, uh, you know, the, the Senate hearings on the Canada-China relations, you know, there's some very capable, um, clever, um, you know, uh, approaches and ideas on what to do with China in the future. And we really need to draw on that. Uh, it's nonpartisan committee, some great findings there. And, uh, and we need to leverage it. There's some things that we definitely need to step back from. We need to make that very clear. You know, I guess my only kind of point there, you know, uh, the government, the ministers said that Canada would be eyes wide open. And ironically, uh, you know, the, the minister, <laughs> the foreign minister in China agreed and said, yes, we actually need a plan and we need Canada to have eyes wide open so we can have a pragmatic view on how to work with Canada. So, you know, there's very, com you know, competitive kind of, um, you know, and, and risk, there's competition and risk, but, uh, you know, we can't pretend that, you know, China is not there, that this isn't even, you know, even though we do the majority of our trade with the United States, it is our second largest trading partner. There's significant people to people ties. Uh, there's economic interests. So, you know, we have to clarify, you know, between our strategic priorities, whether it's economic, whether it's uh, defense and, and, and development. These are, you know, three things I find being conflated over the past few years. Uh, but, uh, you know, I do think that there should be absolutely uh, careful discussions on how to move forward. Colin, what does Canada lose by not engaging with China? Well, 
for the same reasons that Pierre Trudeau recognized China 51 years ago, as Robert says, we have to have a relationship with China because it is the rising superpower. And if Canada wants to be a responsible player, I mean, we want to play the role of the kind of helpful fixer in the world. We, we belong to all the international organizations, the United Nations and its alphabet soup of agencies. More importantly, we're, we're a member of the G7 and the G20, the Commonwealth, the Francophonie. And so if we want to play and our, our leverage, you know, we talked about Washington as our most important partner, without doubt, our ally, but even our leverage in Washington comes in part from our ability to do diplomacy in the rest of the world, bring that intelligence for discussions in Washington. They're always very interested in what we hear, but at the same time, other countries who look at us as the best interpreter of the United States wanna know what Washington's thinking, and that includes the Chinese. And to answer your question, of course we're gonna engage. You know, there's Robert said, we've got significant family people to people links. 5% of our population now is, is of Chinese descent, one of the higher in, in the rest of the world. We have, at, before the pandemic, we and Robert would understand this, we had over 100,000 Chinese students studying Canada, our second largest source. These people-to-people -people ties, you just don't make, but they give us place and standing. We've got to be less naive than I think we were, but we've also got to avoid the paranoia that others would have towards China. China does want to re-engage. This week, I was speaking with the Chinese embassy. They reached out to me to say, all right, we're through this. Can we turn the page? I said, no, you can't turn the page. You know, this, we won't forget, as you pointed out, the polling that shows Canadians mm. are highly, uh, our unfavorability of China is, is high for any country. And that extends to the rest of the Western world. It's not just Canada, it's the rest of Europe, it's Australia, it's New Zealand, it's Japan, of course, the United States. So it's going to be tough for any future government to proceed. But I think we must proceed, we must re-engage. Again, trade, it's our second largest trading partner. We buy an awful lot in manufactured goods and we sell an awful lot in resources that we want to continue doing. And if China is to take its place as it should in the international system, we want to, we want to be able to smooth and, and grease the way because right now we're, we're heading into a kind of a cold war, which nobody wants to see. And that's where I think Canada's ideally placed to sometimes be the helpful fixer. Mindful of our own interests and going in it's again, as Mark Garneau said, and Robert reiterated, with eyes wide open. Peggy, how do you repair the damage between the two countries if they want to continue relations? Well, uh, let me just correct one tiny important point in your introduction. Uh, um, Meng Wanzhou did not plead guilty. She did not plead guilty. She entered no, she... into a deferred prosecution no. agreement and she admitted, quote, some wrongdoing which in legal terms is absolutely meaningless. I mean, the, the, the big headline there is the Justice Department had no case and they needed a face saver. So she agreed in the statement of fact to this lies of no consequence, lying to a bank that knew the truth. But anyway, that, um, you know, that's relevant because it, it partly demonstrates, I mean, when, how do we get back on track? We have to get a more nuanced discussion into the media. Um, the anti-China bashing, of course, we understand all the while that the two Michaels were, uh, you know, were, were being held hostage, uh, the hostility that, that would engender. But there was precious little in the media. I mean, occasionally there was something about the Chinese perspective on this that they believed that, as they said, 
um, Canada was doing U.S. dirty work. I mean, I think Canada got blindsided. That's my mm. my opinion. That uh, um, uh, and then, of course, we could even though extradition. And this was the other problem with the entire debate. Extradition. I'm a lawyer. Is inherently political because it involves different legal systems. And that's why the Minister of Justice has this extraordinary discretion to stop the proceedings at any time, which he doesn't have in other cases. It would prejudice the independence of the judiciary. But you have it in extradition cases. But our minister didn't exercise it. And essentially, there, that was with for very good reason. First of all, all the while that Trump was president, it would have been extremely foolhardy because it would have set Canada up for um, retaliation from the United States. So clearly they couldn't take that risk. And then once Biden came in, I think also Canada by then had made so many statements about the independence of the judiciary. I think the public would have been rightly confused if Canada had, uh, had, had, had moved in and exercised the discretion then. But the bottom line is, is that we should never have been put in that position. You know, and the it was the Trump administration that put us in that position, and it was the Biden administration that got us out of it by this face-saving uh, deferred prosecution uh, agreement. But to come back to how do we how do we make progress? We have to be able to have a more nuanced discussion, particularly on the defense front. I mean, if you I talk to friends former uh, senior civil servants, but not in foreign policy. And they're absolutely shocked when I tell them that, you know, China has a minuscule, I mean, any number of nuclear weapons is of concern, but vis-a-vis -vis United States, they have a tiny number. And even if their planned increases, which are significant in Chinese terms, take place, they still will have far, far less nuclear weapons than the United States and Russia. So they can't attack United States. They cannot win a war with the United States. I mean, that would be the end for both countries. And, and so we have to, the military dimension has to be discussed reasonably. And that's not, you know, that's not happening. And I mean, for Canada, the delay, so I really, really, um, you know, echo, um, echo uh, you know, points made earlier that the, the, um, the strength for us the real strength in China's eyes, I mean, I'm not talking about the economic side of things, but, but the geostrategic is, is, is if we can play a moderating role with respect to the United States and arms control, nuclear risk reduction are obvious areas, but also to try and support uh, you know, voices in the US that are really saying that it's you know, this all out competition uh, new Cold War, which Biden does not seem to be backing away from. I mean, he, he, this is not the way to go. Uh, so, I, you know, I think there is room for Canada. But I mean, essentially, we're looking at in the, in the context of a Chinese-US all-out rivalry. I mean, that, that's, that, that's extremely difficult for, for, for Canada and will take a lot of smart people to, uh, you know, to, to move forward. But at least now we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, Mimi, more than 300,000 Canadians live in Hong Kong. And I've been reading this morning that trade unions in Hong Kong are disbanding because of the government. China's ignored its promise to Britain and those Hong Kong residents. What is the future of those people? Wow, this is very tricky because um, you have seen what has been happening uh, to Hong Kong. Basically, um, 
once that national security law had in place, people got suppressed um, largely. And, you know, the, like all those pro-democracy leaders and literally anyone who voices out, people even get arrested for being handing out or just holding blank papers on the street. So we see how aggressively the Chinese government is actually changing their strategies towards Hong Kong. And of course, you know, we see over the years, the Chinese have been invading India and lately expanded to the Taiwan airspace. So it's, it's really hard to say what's the fate of the people who are still willingly or unwillingly um, staying in Hong Kong right now. Robert, there's about 30,000 Canadians in Taiwan, as, uh, as Mimi brought up. China antagonizes by sending ships and jets into their sphere. And then just last night, the Taiwanese foreign minister was warning his country is preparing for war with China, asking Australia for help. What can Canada do to, sh to show support for the people in Taiwan? Um, I would, it's extremely complicated. I, there's a few things, though. I, I think Taiwan, differentiating between Taiwan and Hong Kong, where you know, Hong Kong is a, you know, this, it's a, a, a city state, but a Chinese city under a special administrative region. Um, it doesn't have a military, like, uh, you know, like Taiwan, it had a, a British, uh, basically, you know, we could call it almost a colonial law and the basic loss legal system. So there's a very different kind of perspective on how fast they can move on Hong Kong under the cover of a pandemic. Uh, making very public and dramatic examples of pro-democracy activists. Um, Taiwan's a different story. It's a fully armed, uh, you know, uh, territory. And so, and it has, uh, it's it's supported by Japan, by the United States. It's a, it's a different uh, dynamic. And I would say, you know, any kind of um, military intervention by China would be an absolute catastrophe for both sides. The economic linkages are are deep. Uh, the cultural linkages are deep. The political, you know, relationships between some of uh, Taiwan's party members and and uh, the Chinese Communist Party also are deep, even though they see different on on the the, the solution out of it. But you know. You have to think, you've got a country of 23 million people fully military trained in Taiwan, willing to fight you know, if they get attacked. And that is a, that is a messy proposition that China do. Now, there's high risk of, of mistakes and errors. And I think that is, is the real risk. And what that might do and inflame a, another type of conflict, not necessarily with you know, Taiwan perhaps at the middle of it, but, uh, but between uh, you know, allies and so drawing other countries into the conflict. Um, but this is, you know, the, the thing with Taiwan is you can't just shut off the narrative in mainland China that Taiwan is is not a part of China. You know, uh, mainland Chinese students are taught from, from day one of, of preschool that Taiwan is, you know, China and, and, and there's a, it's going to be eventually reunited. So, you know, this is a narrative that's not going to ever go away. It's going to be something that I think is going to have to be um, you know, rectified and, and come to an agreement between Taiwan and, and Beijing and, and so between Taipei and Beijing. Canada can play as, as, as we've been discussing as a, as a mediation force. And, and, you know, we've been pretty clear and, 
and stable on our on our policy of the Taiwan China issue, and that has really changed. We speak out when you know acts of aggression happen, and we need to keep doing that. Um, and we need to support our allies when they also do that, and you know that we don't um, accept a, a violent kind of uh, incursion in the region. And so, but I, I do think that there's uh, an opportunity for Canada to do play that middle power broker role between the two, and that's going to be tricky because we have tremendous, you know, Taiwanese uh, diaspora in in Canada, and we have. I, I lived in Kaohsiung for a few years. You know, it's a wonderful place. It, it is, uh, you know, it is a, a amazing, um, you know, I, you know, society. And so I think Canada has a lot of stake in it, and uh, and we just have to be, you know, careful on on you know not, you know understanding that this is uh, a long historical struggle between Taiwan and China, and and you know, there's limits on what we can realistically do there. Can I just jump in just on that sure. historical struggle part, because I'm very glad that was brought up, because, of course, it's not just uh, what, what Chinese are taught at, at school. I mean, the basis on which we all agreed to recognize China and the basis on which it became, you know, a member of the uh, United Nations was that, you know, the Taiwan lost the seat. So the you know, that is an international reality, which many, many countries may now would have hoped that possibly things could have developed uh, more, more so than they have. But, you know, that's a reality. I mean, it's not, it's not admitted into international organizations. It appears for pragmatic purposes as the, you know, Taipei. And that, of course, is a very good, uh, has been a very pragmatic means of allowing you know, uh, the country to participate. Um, but all of which to reinforce that this is your, the point that Robert has made, that this is a, this is very complicated. And, uh, and, and that dimension, I get back to my broken record about the media is not necessarily um, made as clear as I think would be, would be very, very helpful in the situation. And we also have to be careful about airspace because it was the expanded airspace that China entered into, you know, the defense, there's a name for beyond the immediate uh, territorial airspace, but, you know, a defense zone, declared defense zone. And that's what they entered. They did not go into the actual um, uh, uh, Taiwanese uh, if hmm. airspace. And uh, the same with respect to India and China have a long stand have longstanding disputes, including boundary disputes. So it's not accurate to say that India, that China invaded India. I mean, in fact, that's the big demarcation with China. Historically, they do not have any history of invading other countries, but where they perceive that it is their, uh, you know, their territory, their uh, jurisdiction, and this brings us to the South China Sea dispute, then you see. Uh, you know, absolutely implacable steps to gird up what they regard as 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 theirs, where where others might not. Colin, what role does the U.S. play in the Canada-China relationship? Well, the the U.S. is our first ally mm -hmm. and our biggest trading partner, and they are the you know under Joe Biden, uh, they are rejuvenating multilateralism and restoring the alliance system. And the alliance system is, in a sense, the bulwark against uh, aggression, uh, whether it be Russian or Chinese. So they're, they're a vital piece. And there's no doubt the Chinese think of us as a tributary because of, as has been pointed out, 
our decision to proceed correctly with the extradition request. You know, we, we it probably needed more thought at the time. I'm, I'm with uh, John Manley that we perhaps should have shown a bit of creative incompetence at the uh, Vancouver airport and let her fly on to Mexico City and leave it to someone else. But we proceeded and then we wrapped ourselves in the mantle of uh, rule of law. And it, it gave, the one thing about diplomacy, you always want to give yourself as much space as you can. And we, we did not do that. And of course, then we, as you pointed out, it was a thousand and 19, 20 days for the two Michaels. I'll just say on Taiwan and Hong Kong, though, I think Taiwan gives the lie to the uh, the concept expounded by China and some elsewhere, particularly in Singapore, the Lee Kuan Yew thing, that the Asian way is authoritarianism. You know, go to Hong Kong, it's a vibrant democracy. When I first visited it in 1987, it, it mirrored Beijing. It, they, they may have been the losers, but the, the KMT ran the thing as an authoritarian state. And it was as as gloomy as Beijing was when I visited. We visit, uh, it was, certainly both places have improved, but the one place is a, is a surveillance, uh, a new state of authoritarianism, whereas uh, Taiwan, it's same-sex marriage. I met their, their minister of technology, uh, transgender. Uh, there was a demonstration out front of the, their White House uh, when I was there on behalf of press freedom because they didn't like the idea that some of their papers were controlled by Chinese interests. It is a lively, vibrant democracy with the rights to go with it. And it gives, I say, the lie to the authoritarian narrative that that's just the Asian way. It isn't. I mean, democracy really is something that we believe in. And I think that's that takes me to Hong Kong, where we have 300,000 people. What I do is we've got this committee on China-Canada, which I hope is reconstituted in the new parliament, because this is all about the new government. Uh, I would have a subcommittee just looking at Hong Kong, because our interests in Hong Kong are actually much greater than any other country, again, because of people-to-people -people ties. We've got over 300,000, could be up to half a million, with a claim Canada. That was our entree into China and also our entree into the rest of Asia. So we really should be standing up uh, and uh, with in good company against what uh, China has done. They've broken all their international covenants, and uh, they are smothering the, the representative government rule of law. Uh, and that that should be targeted. I think that does require G7 uh, F efforts with the Australians and New Zealanders to, to to embarrass the Chinese because they have they have broken their 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 commitments to the 50 years of uh, uh, of the special administrative reason and you know one country two systems. And this was to be the model for the eventual incorporation of Taiwan. But that's also gone down by the Board, so the Taiwanese say, forget it, we don't want to join this. Again, if I can jump in, the, the, because the, unfortunately the Cold War, which I don't agree Biden is backed off of, I mean, the American, the basic American uh, military strategy of dominance is forward deployment and encirclement and, and containment of, of China. And that means they have to be very concerned about what they would regard as the Trojan horses of uh, the Trojan horse of Hong Kong. So, I mean, that, so the broader picture of United States really engaging much more in, in, in dialogue. And, you know, there are many in the US now that are looking at progressive voices that are trying to look at a reorientation of military uh, strategy in the US, more military rest restraint and more smart actions vis-a-vis uh, -vis the challenges that uh, that China poses instead of continuing this um, uh, this basically 
foolhardy policy because they, you know, in the end, they cannot, um, it, it will not prevail of, of, of seeking this kind of encirclement and of being right at the doorstep. I mean, right uh, in, 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 in China's backyard all the time. Um, so unfortunately, I think that Hong Kong, I mean, I'm not saying that China wouldn't, I mean, the authoritarian impulse is extraordinarily strong. We can see that. But, but the, the military uh, strategy of the United States has certainly um, exacerbated that Chinese tendency to, to gain a, as much control over, over Hong Kong uh, as, as, as possible. Maybe and we've got, to, oh, jump sorry. in, Mimi. Go ahead. I, I, I want to add that like, um, we have to be reminded that the Sino-British Agreement was actually registered on the UN. And there were a lot of countries at that time endorsing it. But then right now, when Chinese has broken all the promises, nobody was really saying anything. Well, I, you know what I'm wondering, Mimi, is with, with our new government, uh, you know, although it looks pretty well the same as the last one, do you expect we're going to see a clear policy from it? And what kind of policy would you like to see? Well, I really can't see this government is going to have much differences uh, in terms of what they have been doing already. And as a matter of fact, since Trudeau had been in power, Canadians' voice on the international stage had been weakened along the way. And I think Canada needs to adopt a progressive approach on foreign policy that actually puts human security and, and human rights first and reconsiders all our traditional allies to build new relationships, maybe even, you know, with a border diversity of different countries in the world, especially, of course, the democratic ones. And we need to work, close, work a lot closer with Taiwan and Australia. These are the countries that actually feel the same kind of pressure as we do. As a matter of fact, my problem with Canada is that a lot of fellow Canadians actually, they don't feel the same kind of pressure and they, they're not, they don't, they are not aware mm -hmm. with the impact of what's going on affecting them. Many Canadians are still in the comfy cocoons. So we have to make sure how do we actually bring this to everyone and we understand what kind of impact we are facing. And, you know, Colin, as uh, as a former diplomat, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, you've had a, a nasty situation between Canada and China for three years. And, you know, let's say you're the Canadian diplomat and then you've got to meet to try and bring things together. That's got to be a very, very uncomfortable conversation. Yes, but, you know, the, the fact that the Michaels were released at the same time as Meng Wanzhou, that required a lot of choreography between American diplomats, Chinese diplomats and Canadian diplomats. The first year and a half after the, the Meng Wanzhou uh, seizure and the two Michaels seized in response, the Chinese simply froze us out. We've got an elaborate framework of exchanges, premier and prime minister, national security advisors, environment ministers, foreign ministers. The Chinese just dropped everything. And uh, the, the trick now is to try and re-engage, but the, the, the starting point will be the fact that for us to, to sequence that, that, that swap, because that's really what it came down to, Meng Wanzhou for the Michaels, it had to be a lot of choreography and a lot of work between 
our embassy in Beijing in particular, the embassy, the Chinese embassy here, probably, and of course the Americans. So the relationships have, have, have started again. And as I say, the Chinese, uh, I know, want to reach out. My view is we have to engage because it brings real value to Canada. And we've got the relationship is, it's, it's too big to ignore. Uh, and so I, I, I and, and if the Chinese are willing, and certainly there's every indication that they are, then you can restart this. But it's going to take time because this government is extraordinarily timid. And I think that they look at public opinion and they also, foreign affairs has not been mm -hmm. Mr. Trudeau's forte. You know, Canada's back is humbug. But uh, I, on the other hand, as I say, you can't ignore China. And it, and, and the irony, of course, is Mr. Trudeau, after uh, Angela Merkel's departure, is going to be the dean of the G7. And so <laughs> there will be some expectation look to him to, to lead. Previous prime ministers like Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien, and of course his father, Pierre Trudeau, by the time they had a third election, were, were, were prepared to play on the international stage. I think Trudeau will, will probably want to, but it means he's got to make big investments, first in diplomacy, second in defense, and then most importantly in development. Robert, uh, China doesn't like to be called out or embarrassed on the world stage, and that would certainly happen if nations decided to boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Should Canada and other democratic nations stay home to send a message? I don't think so um, I, at all. I, I think, um, you know, it's an opportunity, actually, is what I'd say. I mean, um, and it would be quite um, futile <laughs> to do it alone, I think, out of our own kind of ego and 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 you know i so i i think the olympics you know are you know as much as they say they're not political they are very political um but it's how we choose to use it you know and canada just to kind of follow up on what's been being discussed you know that we have a, a long history of of using our 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 values and interests and, and and especially as mimi mentioned the human security approach which i couldn't agree more and we are we stand for certain interests and values, and we these are opportunities for us to display them. China is not expecting us to say, you know, we agree with uh, you know authoritarianism or we dislike or we're not a liberal democracy. In fact, they'd probably be quite surprised if we stopped talking about that. So you know, but we need to be present and we need to be in Asia, and we don't you know we're we're very limited on on our presence there. I know we've been trying to increase it, but uh, you know, we have to be showing up. And part of that is showing up at, at the Olympics. You know, and it's an opportunity to highlight what's happening there. I, I also, you know, to what Peggy's referring to in the media, that we have to get away from this, uh, you know, extremely, in my view, toxic kind of opinion kind of uh, realm that's happening out there with this. And it's conflates Everything, everything is a security issue. Nothing is about, you know, uh, working together in human security and helping people. And, and that's what it, we have to get back to. And Canada helps people. This is what we've uh, been known for in, in, in navigating international relations. And we have been doing it uh, for some time. And I, I do think, again, we need to draw more on the foreign service. Uh, you know, we're left to kind of these uh, populist politicians following opinion polls, and it's a disaster. And they need to show leadership, and they need to, you know, stand up and say what you know what we need to what we need to do here. 
Well, folks, that was a great discussion, and I want to thank you all for joining us today on Unpublished TV. Robert Hanlon, Associate Professor, Department of Philosophy, History, and Politics at Thompson Rivers University. Peggy Mason is the President of the Rideau Institute on International Affairs. Colin Robertson, former Canadian diplomat and the Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Mimi Lee is with the Torontonian Hong Kongers Action Group. Coming up next on the, on the next Unpublished TV, our panel will take a look at the priorities of our new federal government. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>